Genesis 42. Starting in verse 35, where I preached last time in the story of Joseph and Jacob, his father, to give you a little bit of a summary, the sons of Jacob were sent down to Egypt because of a famine, and they went down, and for the first time they stood before the prime minister of Egypt, their brother Joseph, unknowingly, and Joseph was rather harsh to them and questioned their integrity and questioned their truthfulness, and so he basically sent them back home. After giving them food, he sent them back home. He took Simeon as a prisoner, and he sent them back home and said, bring, us, bring me back your brother your youngest brother, bring him back to me. And then I will know that you are men of integrity. And so they did that. And that's where we left them last week, as they, uh, last time I preached, as they came back to their father. And starting in verse 35, this is the word of God in, in Genesis 42. Now it came about, as they were emptying their sacks, that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, why did you treat me so badly? By telling the man whether you, whether you still had another brother. But they said, the man questioned us, particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. 
we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be a surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Last week, we got back from our vacation. Part of it we spent in Yellowstone, and then we flew back on Thursday. And we got back rather late. It was like 11.30 at night in Atlanta. And so we grabbed all our bags, in which we had a bunch of them, and wheeled them all the way across the parking lot, loaded the truck, drove here. Um, and we got here at about 2.30 in the morning, Friday, Got to bed about 3, and I got up early to come here. And when I got up, I was frantically looking for my briefcase. And my first thought was, oh no, I left the briefcase in the parking lot of the airport. Right? Now, why, why was I so frantic about my briefcase? Because this was in it. And it was the only copy. But... But as I, I, as I was getting frantic, I thought of the name of the sermon, who was in control. And I thought, oh, I shouldn't be getting frantic about this because, you know, if God wants me to lose my sermon, I've got to trust him that he has a purpose for this, right? So God is constantly, and let me repeat that, God is constantly teaching every one of us who are believers, every day of our Christian life, I believe up till the time we die, he is constantly teaching us who is in control. Because I believe many times throughout our life, we want to do what Jacob was doing. We want to grab back control, as if we can grab control from God. But that is something that God is teaching us Every day, I believe. And 25 years ago, he was teaching Denise and I that lesson. And we found out back then, 25 years ago, that we were struggling with infertility problems. Now, that's a shock to most Americans who think that they are in, their, in control of their ability to reproduce we many times take for granted the miracle of birth. We think that we can dictate by taking a pill when a woman gets pregnant and when she doesn't get pregnant. But who is in control? Well, after going through many infertility specialists and going through many treatments, we still were not pregnant. Notice I say we. <laughs> we still were not pregnant, so we decided to, to take a better way, um, a more sure-fired way of getting a child, which was through adoption. So we went to an agency in Orlando, Florida, and they promised to get us a child in nine months. Go figure, nine months. And months before that, I had called the Pregnancy Resources Center in Melbourne, Florida, and I had talked to a lady who was in control of that, who was over that ministry. Yeah, in control. 
And she, you know, I asked her if, if there was ever a girl there that was thinking about adoption, if she could get in contact with me. Well, six months later, this lady calls me. And I had totally forgotten about it. She called me six months later, and two months after that, Jillian was ours. Isn't that amazing? Who is in control is a very hard lesson for us to learn. And I believe it's especially hard for us as men, you know, because we think we have everything under control. We've got a handle on our emotions. Um, we've got a handle on our jobs and our families. And it's not until we lose control is the point is at when we find out who's really in control. And I believe it's the time when we learn the most important rule for life. And it's rule number three. Okay, if you remember nothing else today, remember rule number three. But you've got to know rule number one and two first. And rule number one is God is God. Rule number two is you are not God. And rule number three is don't mix up rule number one with number two. Now, Joseph, Jacob had mixed up those rules. And we saw how he thought everything and everybody was against him. And because of this, Jacob threw a pity party. And the results of that pity party was he tried to grab control of his life. He said, I'm not allowing Benjamin to go with you guys. You know, I'm not allowing the last son of Rachel to be taken out of my presence. You see, his joy, his contentment, his comfort was in knowing his, his youngest son was by his side. And what was he doing by that? He was trying to control his life instead of trusting God with it. And remember, God had promised Jacob, just like he promised Abraham, that he would have descendants as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. And not only did God promise that to Jacob, but Jacob had more evidence that that promise would be fulfilled because he still had 11 sons. How many sons did Abraham have? One. And two if you counted Ishmael. Jacob was not trusting his God at this point. And God would teach Jacob and his sons who is in control through natural disasters, the human will, and extreme circumstances. Let's first look at natural disasters. You know, if there was anybody who wanted this famine to be over with, it was Jacob and his sons. It seems like, you know, you read the text, it seems like they were willing to leave Simeon down there. As long as they had food, they were fine. You know, they, that uh, Jacob wouldn't have to face his troubles by letting Benjamin go, and the brothers wouldn't have to go back down and face the prime minister of Egypt. But God wouldn't let them get away with this. So look at verse 1 in chapter 43. It says, now the famine was severe in the land. And famine is a terrible natural 
disaster. And this is the first one recorded in the Bible. And there, are many, there have been many famines, you know, throughout history. There was one in Rome in 436 B.C., and it was so severe that people were jumping in the Tiber River to commit suicide. All of Europe has faced famines from 879, 1016, 1162, and who can forget the famine that was in Ethiopia with all the pictures and all the commercials that we have seen Famine and natural disasters are a terrible thing, but they are a thing that shows us that we are not in control. That we are, in a sense, helpless. You know, it's like, it's like standing in front of a tidal wave that's coming at you, and you're standing there with an umbrella, thinking you're safe. That's what it's like. One example of this happened back in August of 1993. I was supposed to start seminary in, I think it was like August 23rd, and I was supposed to start seminary that day, and Hurricane Andrew struck. And this was a monster storm, and it, it struck Miami, kind of in between Miami and Homestead, and if you remember, I was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida, and the, and the barracks there were solid cinder block walls. And what I heard was this entire Air Force Base, I didn't see it, was pretty much leveled by Hurricane Andrew. Um, Steve Brown, who is a pastor, pretty famous, we had him come here to speak years ago, he was a pastor down in Miami when this storm hit. He was also a professor at my uh, seminary. So a couple weeks later, I heard all the stories he told. And one of them, he told of a couple that went to the central part of their house during this storm, and they rode out the storm in their bathroom in the center of the house. And the next morning when they woke up, they prayed all night long that God would protect them. They, they woke up the next morning, they opened the door to the bathroom, and they came out, and their whole house was basically gone. All that was left was their bathroom. Okay? And Steve Brown had many people in his church lose their homes, you know, lose their cars, lose their boats, but nobody died, and that's what they were thankful for. Kind of reminds me of another natural disaster that's in the book of Jonah. In that, uh, God sends a storm. In verse 4 of chapter 1, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And you remember the story, Jonah's running from God, and so God sends a storm on the sea to pretty much get his prophet to turn around, right? And it says in verse 4, The Lord hurled a great storm on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about ready to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. In verse 5, it says, these sailors. And these were professional sailors. Okay? 
In the Hebrew, it calls them salty ones. So these guys had faced many storms in their lives before. But this storm was different. It was so large that their ship was about ready to break up, and it made them fearful. These guys that once trusted in their own sailing abilities now were filled with fear as they faced this natural disaster. They're about ready to give it up, right? And so what do they do? They turn to their gods. And then in verse 14 of this chapter, when they find out who really is in control of this storm, they say this, For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. They say that God is sovereign. He's the one that brought the storm. He's the one that's in control of it. And then when they throw Jonah overboard, the storm stops, and then they really start fearing. Instead of the sea, they start fearing God, who is in control of even the mighty storms. Well, Jacob and his sons faced this great famine and they were out of food. So, they, so Jacob tells his sons to go back to Egypt. But notice, go back to Genesis. But notice what Judah's response is to his father. He basically says, no. Let me read that. It says, Judah spoke to him in verse 3. However, saying, the man solemnly warned us. You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. You know, Judah's response is the next roadblock that Jacob faces, and he he basically faces the roadblock of the human will. And many times, you know what? We would rather face the human will instead of a natural disaster. And why is that? Because we think we can always change people's minds. We think we can always change people. You know, when you see a quality in your spouse that you don't like, that you think's making you unhappy, you think the way of happiness is to get that spouse to change. Or maybe it's a coworker, get them to change. Or maybe it's your boss to make you happy. You're trying to get them to change. But after some effort, you find out these changes don't come so easily. In fact, it helps us to understand that many times it's God is the only one who can change the human heart. God's the only one. He's the only one who has control over that. And the idea of having control over others can be seen in John 19, verses 10 and 11, where Jesus is standing before the governor of Judea, Pilate, and Pilate is saying to him, look, he says, he says do you know that I have the power to crucify you and that I have the power to release you. And what's Jesus' response? And I love this response of Jesus. I want you to think about this because 
in a sense, it's one of the most freeing verses. You know, it's, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, this truth is very important, what Jesus is saying here. He says this, you could have no power at all against me unless it's been given to you from above. How, how is Jesus at peace in that situation? You know, at that storm in his life. Because he knew that every circumstance in his life came through his loving Heavenly Father's hand. And he could trust him. He could trust him. And he knew, and he knew that Pilate didn't have any control over him. Christ knew that no one could do anything to him unless his loving Heavenly Father allowed it. God was all-powerful, Pilate was not. And you know what? In this story, Jacob starts seeming to understand this. Near the end of the story, he starts to figure out that even the prime minister of Egypt could do nothing to his sons unless the Almighty God, and you'll notice that in the text, the Almighty God allows it. Well, the third necessity imposed on Jacob and his sons is that of circumstances. Look at verse 6. Then Israel said, and notice his name changes, Jacob changes, his name changes to Israel. That's pretty important. We'll talk about it in a second. But then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly? By telling the man whether you still had another brother. So what is he doing here? He's blaming his bad circumstances on his sons. He's saying, why did you tell him that? And you know what? Many times we do the same thing, don't we? When something happens bad in our lives, we're, we're facing a terrible circumstance in our life, a lot of times we look around at others and we try to blame them. We try to say, you did this, and that's why we're in this predicament, don't we? Instead of seeing our circumstances by seeing them in God's hands and seeing them under His control. Jacob tells them, why did you treat me so badly? Why did you treat me so badly? And the brother's response is, how did we know that when we brought up our brother, he was going to say, hey, go back and bring him back to me. They didn't know. They didn't know. And the thing that Jacob should have understood in all of this was that God uses the circumstances of our lives to change our lives and to change others around us. So who was changed in this story? Well, look at verse 8. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be a surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame before you forever." For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. 
before this was a very hard man. He was a very self-centered man. In fact, he was the one who suggested when the brother said, hey, let's kill Joseph, Judah was the one that said, hey, let's sell him. Let's make money off of him. And he wasn't doing that out of to try to save his brother. He was basically doing that to make money off the deal. Judah was a wicked man. But now he begins to soften. He begins to think about his father. He begins to think about others besides himself. And he's willing to take the blame if Benjamin's not returned to his father. Judah had changed at this point, but so had Jacob. Look at verse 11. Then their father Israel, and notice the name has changed, Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best product of the land in your bags and carry it down to the man as a present. A little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks perhaps it was a mistake take your brother also and arise return to the man and may god almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release you your other brother and benjamin and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin, and then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. You know, remember just a minute ago we talked about how Jacob was saying that everything was against him, that his main comfort and his main joy was holding on to his son Benjamin. Now I want you to think about that. As long as he held on to his son, he wasn't walking by faith. He was walking by his own sight. But when he gave up his son, when he allowed him to go down to Egypt with his other sons, then jo Jacob resumed his walk of faith. As one writer says this, he says, enduring as seeing him who is invisible, when he is weak, then he is strong, strong in faith, seeing an unseen Lord, leaning on an unseen powerful arm, looking up into an unseen loving face, looking out for an unseen glorious home. Jacob had been changed. Now who are you this morning? Who are you like? Are you like Jacob's sons? Or are you like Jacob himself? Jacob's sons before this day were men who were religious. You know, they knew religious words. They would be like, today would be like a nominal Christian who, who would go to church, who would know many things about the Bible, but they didn't know God. They didn't know the power of God in their lives. Are you like Jacob's sons who 
haven't seen the power of God in your life? Do you think that you're still in control of everything in your life? Then maybe you're like his sons and you need to come to Christ this morning. And you need to ask him for forgiveness of your sins. You need to ask him for a righteousness that's not your own because that's what God requires of us. He requires us to have a perfect life and none of us can do that because we are all born sinners. And the only way of salvation is not by cleaning up our act, not by being religious, not by going to church, but by putting our full and total faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for everything. When we do that, what God does is He takes the righteous life of Christ, that perfect life, that perfect record, and He puts it to our account. And He takes all of our sins, not just the past, but the present and the future, and He puts them upon Christ. It's called the great exchange. It's the glorious gospel. And that's what He does when we come to Him by faith. But maybe you're, maybe you're not like Jacob's sons, but you're like Jacob, who was a believer. But he was an older believer who had started to grow complacent, and he started holding on to fleshly things like his son Benjamin for his happiness and for his comfort. And maybe you're doing the same thing today. Maybe you're holding on to something. Maybe you're trying to control your life right now. And keep it from going out of control. But when we do that, we're not walking by faith. We're walking by our own sight. So what, are you, what keeps you from letting go to begin this, to be, resume your walk of faith? You know, and it, that kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul. If you think about it, the Apostle Paul could have been tempted in the same way that Jacob was by grabbing on to c- control of his life when everything seemed to be out of control. And f- I, I was thinking about that for one part of Paul's life um, when he was put under house arrest in Rome. That must have been an amazing, not amazing, but a terrible temptation for him. You know, here's this type A driven apostle to give the gospel to the whole world. And then all of a sudden, he's thrown in jail. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and he's sitting there in that little house thinking probably, what am I going to do? What's the church going to do without me? You know, he could have been tempted to start asking you know, speculative questions like, what if? What if I'm never released? The gospel will not go to the world. What if they torture me and I deny my Lord? What if I never get go to go back to my home and see my family? What if the church collapses because of my inactivity? You know, if Paul would have been trapped by this discontentment through speculation then he would have been looking at his problems through his own perspective instead of seeing them through God's perspective. 
And I'm sure, just like all of us, the, the apostle was tempted many times to speculate. But instead of asking the question, what if, I'm sure he asked another question. He said, what about God? What about God? And how can I live for God in the circumstances that I find myself? And you know what he did after that? He wrote the epistles. He wrote the epistles. And what would the New Testament be like without Paul's epistles? Without the epistle of the Philippi, of um, Philippians, the epistle of joy. You know, if Jacob would have continued to try to hold on to control of Benjamin, his family would have starved in Canaan. He would have never seen his son, Simeon, and Joseph again. And here's the most important part. He would have never seen the glory of God in his sons being returned to him. Can you imagine the joy that day when he found out that Joseph was alive? and that Simeon was being brought back, and that he wasn't going to lose his son Benjamin. Amazing stuff! He would have never seen any of it. But Jacob gave up control to his mighty God, the Sovereign One, his loving Heavenly Father. And that made all the difference. Let's pray together. It's such a simple truth. It's easy to understand, and we see it throughout the Bible, that you are in control of everything. But, but Lord, it's, it's very hard to, um, for us to many times grasp hold of in our lives. And many times, instead of um, turning to you and resting in you, we try to take control in our of all the things that are happening in our lives. So, Lord, forgive us when we do that. Help us to learn how to daily uh, trust you with everything. Help us to walk by the Spirit and walk by faith and not by sight. Father, we thank you that your word um, and the promises of your word are true every day and that we can rest in them, help us to do that. And Father, we thank you that when we live that way, we live for your glory and for your honor. So we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this time together, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.